0: Hopefully you're in Luke chapter 15. This is a section of parables, starting and beginning chapter 15, going in through chapter 17. Parables of Jesus are a master class in storytelling and teaching. They were always simple stories that everybody could relate to. There was nothing outlandish, nothing that caused you to check your brain at the door. No cities under the sea, no talking animals, nothing that you would see in fables, no rabbits racing turtles or anything like that. It was all true to life, things that people would see on a normal, everyday, uh, nearly everyday basis. Uh, Jesus used these stories masterfully to change people's minds, to answer questions, to address accusations, and to bring about conviction. Of all the parables that Jesus taught, uh, among the most well-known, you would have maybe the the Good Samaritan, then equal to or maybe even surpassing that is the parable of the prodigal son. I don't think that's the greatest title for the parable, mainly because it comes in the line of three parables about something that was lost and it is found. We have the lost sheep and then the lost coin, so I think the lost son is the better title for that. But... Uh, it won't be on the entrance, entrance exam to heaven, so you don't need to know that. This is the, like I said, one of the most well-known parables. This parable of the prodigal son, and most people that know anything about it know of the first two sections. It comes in the, in three. Uh, there are three main parts to it: uh, the younger son, the father, and the older son. And most people that know anything about it know about the younger son and the father, but. Most people don't know, or fewer people know about the older son. But that's part's important, and it really packs a punch in this parable. Uh, in fact, it may ultimately be the most important part of the parable. Jesus had been meeting with and eating with tax collectors and sinners, the scribes and the Pharisees have been critical of Jesus for doing this and they level this accusation against Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners, essentially saying that, they, that he was like them or he was at least approving or overlooking their wickedness. And in response to this accusation, Jesus gives these three parables. And in the first two that are very much alike The parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Something was lost and was searched for until it was found. And then there was rejoicing. And in both of those parables, Jesus addresses or compares the elation to finding the sheep or finding the coin to the joy that takes place in heaven with God and with the angels at the repentance of a sinner. This third parable is similar, but certainly not identical to that. He never talks about heaven here at all in the third parable. And it's much more detailed than the other two. In the end, what we find is God rejoices when sinners come to repentance. This third parable, the parable of the lost son, is is much more detailed. It's much more involved. And it would have drawn his audience in. They would have become invested to a certain degree in the story. And the audience... Primarily, is the Pharisees and the scribes, the ones who are leveling this accusation against Jesus. Why would he eat with sinners? As I mentioned, there are three main characters, the younger son, the father, and the older son, and that's the way we'll look at the parable. So we'll start with the younger son. And it starts in chapter 15, verse 11, right on the heels of the other two parables. There's no break in between these parables. And Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. The younger son, like many sons do, began to despise his home. He resented being at home, living at home. He resented the unwanted counsel. He didn't like the unsolicited advice on how to live his life. He didn't care for the parental correction. He felt like he was old enough to do it on his own. He didn't need dad looking over his shoulder or telling him what to do or how to do it. He was tired of that. Fed up with living under somebody else's rules. He wanted to be his own boss. He wanted to make his own rules. He wanted to go to bed when he got tired. And he wanted to get up when he was awake. He was tired of the disapproving looks of others that were ruining his fun. The walls of his home began to feel like they were closing in on him and he couldn't wait to get out of there. He was discontent. But he felt justified in his discontent. Maybe thinking, I I can't be a man unless I get out of this house and live on my own. He felt that it was becoming an oppressive place to be. The seeds of discontentment grew into anger and animosity. And he just couldn't stand it anymore. He would get out if he could, but he just couldn't afford it found himself wishing that he had money. But the only way to have any money is to inherit it. And the only way he could righteously inherit it is if his dad was dead. So he began to wish his father would die so he could get his portion. But not wanting to wait that long and not uh, wanting to commit murder... He went to his dad and he demanded his portion of the inheritance, which in that day and age, in this situation, would have been one-third of the estate. Two-thirds of the estate would have gone to the older brother as customary in Jewish inheritance laws, and one-third would have gone to the younger brother because there was only two brothers. Older older one would always get two shares of whatever it was divided up into. The rest would all get one share. In this case, the younger would get a third of this property. It's obviously fairly extensive. There are servants there. There's uh, cattle there. There's fields there. So he goes to his dad and he kind of demands, Dad, I want a third. I want my inheritance now. Now the dad had every right to chastise the son. The son was being disrespectful. Inheritance laws didn't come into effect until somebody was dead, until the parent was dead. So by demanding the money... The son was in effect saying to dad, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead so I could get my share of the inheritance. The father chooses to liquidate a third of his estate. Sells off whatever he needs to sell off, collect whatever money he needs to collect till he has a third of the value of his estate, and he gives it to his son. Luke chapter 15, verse 13 says, And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Young son packs up everything he owns. All of his clothes, all of his belongings. He's going to take off. He's going to go to a distant country. He has no plans of ever returning again. To the young son, when he leaves, his father is as good as dead. He has no interest in that property, his family. He wants to go live his own life. The father watches, no doubt, with tears in his eyes as he watches his young son disappear over the hill. The son believes he has everything he's ever wanted. He can do whatever he wants. So he begins to live his life, and he lives for the day. He doesn't think beyond his next meal. He spends money on anything he desires. If he wants clothes, he buys clothes. If he wants an animal, he buys an animal. He wants jewels, he buys jewels. He wants company, he buys company. Whatever he wants, he just keeps reaching into his bag of money, and as long as his hands find coins, he thinks he's fine. But then the day comes when he reaches into his money pouch, and the only thing he feels is the bottom of it. He's broke. He's got no money. Verse 14. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. The money ran out. And apparently when the money ran out, so did the companionship. There's no friend there saying, hey, come come sleep on my couch until you get your feet back under you. Here, I got a job for you to do. Here, come work with me. Come stay with me. Here's dinner. Nobody was there to do that. When the money ran out, he was on his own. He could no longer pay rent on the room. They kicked him out into the street. He had no money to buy anything. He had to sell his clothes, sell his animal, sell his family crest ring. Finally, he had to sell his own dignity. Look at verse 15. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into fields to feed swine. To hire himself out to one of the citizens literally means he stuck himself to him. You could even say he glued himself to that man. He found somebody that looked like he could help him in some way, provide him a job, provide him something. And he just would not leave that man and he would follow him everywhere and he would do whatever that man wanted him to do. He was looking for work and the best he could do is come up with a deal with a man who needed somebody to feed his pigs. And here's how simple the deal was. You feed my pigs and you can eat some of the slop. Well, at least he would have some food. Verse 16. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating and no one was giving anything to him. Things got worse. As the famine got worse, so did the slop for the pigs to the point that they were eating carob pods, which were perfectly fine for pigs, but indigestible to humans. So now he didn't even have anything to eat. He had a job that didn't pay him anything. He got no money for it. He didn't even get food for it. This is as low as a Jewish man can get. He became nothing more... Than the slave of a Gentile pig farmer, he was working for scraps and starving anyway. No one cared. No one gave him anything. He wanted to be his own man. He wanted to make up his own rules. He wanted to be fear-free. Uh, he left home, and now he's glued to a Gentile pig farmer. It doesn't get any worse. For a Jewish man. And in the desperate hours when he longed for sleep, but the pains in his stomach prevented him from going to sleep, he began to think about home. He began to miss his father. And he thought back on how he treated his dad, and how disrespectful he had been, and how hateful his words must have sounded to his dad. And then he reflected on how generous and how gracious his dad had always been, even to the hired hands. And how he had taken everything that had been given to him and wasted it and had nothing to show for it. He's sitting in a pigsty and dirty clothes and no shoes and nothing to his name. Verse 17, But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread but i am dying here with hunger as he sat in that pigsty he began to think my my father's workers are so much better off than i am he has been so generous to those who work for him that they all have enough none of them ever needed to go to bed hungry verse 18 I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. Comes to realize that in this current situation, there's no hope. He thinks I'll go back and I'll humble myself before my father. I'll confess my sins to my Father. I'll beg for mercy. Perhaps my Father will show me mercy and grace and he'll give me a job, any job. But in the end, I'm not even worthy to be called his son. I don't deserve any benefit. I've squandered everything my Father gave me. I treated him with contempt and he gave it to me anyway and I've wasted it. I'm completely unworthy. Perhaps perhaps my father will show me immense grace. Well, that brings us to the gracious father. Verse twenty. Still speaking of the son, so I so he got up, came to his father. Son humbles himself, and he makes a long journey home. He has no doubt rehearsed the speech in his head a hundred times on his way from the pig pen to home. What he was going to say to his dad when he saw him. Maybe he ran some scenarios. Dad might say this, he might say that. It might be the worst. The best case scenario might be the worst case scenario. The best case scenario, Dad will give me a job. And I won't starve to death. Worst case scenario, Well, the worst case scenario is the father might consider his son to be dead. And when his son shows up, his father turns his back and says, I only have one son. My other son is dead. Last time he had been at home, he was wishing his father was dead. So who could blame him if the father treated his son as being dead? Maybe you've seen Fiddler on the Roof... The story of Tevya, the milkman, the dairyman with his wife and five daughters, living in a Jewish family, living in Imperial Russia in 1905. Particularly emotional scene, Tevya's third daughter, Chava, runs off and marries vietka a Gentile Russian. As she approaches her father later on to try to talk to her dad and He's so upset that she ran off and married outside the faith and married a Gentile that he chases her away and turns his back on her and treats her as if she's dead from that point on. But the father in this parable is not Teviah. He's much more gracious than that. Verse 20 continues. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. As the son crosses the hill, still too far away to make the the features out, but the father recognizes the frame and he recognizes the gate and his heart begins to swell with emotion. He said, that's my son. And he reaches down and he grabs his robe and he pulls it up and he starts running towards the son. Something an older man wouldn't do is so undignified. And he reaches his son and he throws his arms around him and he pulls him into his chest and he begins to kiss his son. He's not waiting for an explanation. He's not waiting for an excuse. He's not waiting for a confession. He just loves seeing his son return. The servants notice and they run toward him the father kisses his son over and over and over again he's overwhelmed with joy verse 21 the son said to him father I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son the son confesses that he's sinned against God. He confesses he has sinned against the Father. He acknowledges he's not worthy to be called a son. But before he can even ask for a job, the Father has other plans in mind. Verse 22, But the Father said to his servants, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet. I want you to understand what's going on here. Forgiveness was just waiting for the opportunity. They're just waiting for his son to come back. And the father turns to his servants and says, Servants, you run back to the house and you get my best robe and you get my signet ring and you get my sandals and you bring them out and you put them on him. They weren't they didn't belong to the younger son. He took everything with him when he left. So the father is saying, you get my robe. You get my best robe. You get my ring that will allow him to conduct business in my name. You get my sandals and you put them on his feet. That wretched son soon will be standing there dressed in his father's clothing, wearing his father's ring treated like a true son. It be treated just as, as if nothing had ever happened. Verse 23, it's not over. And bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. The fatted calf was saved for a special occasion. They always had one in a field that was nice and plump and ready for a party. And there was no more special occasion than this the return of his son, and the celebration had to take place. He's welcoming his son back. The selfish, self centered, wasteful, hateful man left home, never to return, comes back humble, contrite, and repentant. The father says, We have to celebrate this. The father showed tremendous grace to his son. Treated him as if the offenses never took place. Treated his son as if he had done no wrong. The father did more than forgive his son, he celebrated him. Proudly announced to everyone, This is my son music plays, the food's prepared, party's in full swing. Now if the parable stopped at this point, it would still be a wonderful story of redemption and forgiveness and salvation. And this is where most people who know the story stop. And They tend to apply this to the Christian who walks away from God and becomes convicted and turns around and comes back to God. But that's not what this parable is about. This parable is not about a Christian who walks away from the Lord and then walks back to the Lord. This is the story of salvation. If you're saved, this is your story. This is my story. This is the story of every Christian. Because prior to salvation, we were enemies of God and we were hostile toward Him. Colossians chapter 1 verse 21. You were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. All of us before Christ, whether you were saved at 5 or 55, were sinners. None of us sought after God. We all sought our own way. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. We were all selfish and self-centered. We were poor and miserable and we didn't even know it. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus says, Because you say, I am rich and I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Before we came to saving faith, all of us turned away from God. None of us were seeking after God. This is our story. When we came to saving faith, and God wrapped His arms around us and pulled us into His chest and welcomed us and kissed us and treated us as a son or a daughter as if we would never done anything wrong. He justified us. Again, if the story ends here, it's a fantastic story. It's a great story of forgiveness and grace and redemption and justification and salvation. And then, even if it ends here, it thoroughly answers the question, the accusation of the Pharisees and the scribes of why Jesus ate and fellowshiped with sinners and tax collectors. Because God rejoices when they come to saving faith. But there's another part of the story. There's another son. The older son. And Jesus uses the older son to expose the wicked hearts of the scribes and the Pharisees. So we pick it up in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. The older son had been working. He missed the reunion. He didn't know what happened. He just hears the commotion. He hears the celebratory music. And it's something he hadn't heard in the home for a while. And he calls the servant and says, what's going on? And the servant said, oh, it's great news. Your little brother's back. And your dad is so happy. He's killed the fatted calf. We're having a party. Come on in. This is great news to the father. This is great news to the younger son. This is even great news to the servant. It is not great news to the older brother. Verse 28. Let me back up verse 27. And he said to him, Your your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Verse 28. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and pleaded, began pleading with him. The older brother didn't share the father's joy. It wasn't good news to the older brother. He was not willing to display the father's grace. Rather, he was angry. And he was angry with his father. He was angry that his father would be quick to forgive. He was angry that his father would be eager to redeem. Angry with his father to be so generous with his grace. He felt it was his need to remind his father what a wicked son his brother was. He refuses to take part in the celebration. I'm not going to celebrate this this guy who was so wicked. He does not believe that the father has any business showing kindness to his younger son whatsoever. But the father pleads with his older son to come into the celebration. The father wants his older son there. But, verse 29, he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. The older son say, listen, and now he's becoming more and more bitter. I've never done anything. I have served you all these years. I have never done anything wrong. I have never disobeyed your commands. And you've never given me anything. And this guy, your son, not my brother, your son has wasted a third of your estate. All this that you worked so hard that you spent your life working on, accumulating. He wasted with prostitutes. And frivolous living. He devoured your wealth. And you reward him by killing the fatted calf? The older son claims to be sinless. But that wasn't true. When the younger son... Left his father, he was hateful. He was disrespectful. He was rude. He was self-centered. He was all of the things. He was everything the older son was saying. The younger son was guilty of everything the older son claimed. But the older son had his sin issues too. Such as pride, self-righteousness, an unforgiving, unmerciful spirit. While the younger son's sin was obvious, anybody could see it. The older son's sin was hidden deep inside. So on the outside, he looked great. He might even look perfect. But on the inside, he was dead. He didn't understand his father's loving heart because he hated his brother. It's a good thing the older son wasn't the first one to meet the younger son coming back. Because it would have been a very different story. It would have been, what are you doing here? You broke our father's heart when you left. You have no business being here. You are dead to us. Go away. Because the older son didn't share the father's heart. He didn't share the father's joy. The older son was jealous and prideful and critical, and judgmental, and unloving. And the father responds, verse 31, and he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. He continues to plead, Son, everything that I have belongs to you. Verse 32, but we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has become alive and was lost and has been found. The celebration of the younger son, the redemption of the younger son had to take place. It has to be celebrated. This is such good news. Jesus again shows us that God rejoices over the salvation of a sinner. Now the Pharisees who were listening to Jesus should see themselves in the older son. They claim to be servants of God and they claim to perfectly keep his commandments. They would be the ones who say, hey, I have been faithful to you all this time and I've not sinned against you. Outwardly they look like perfect sons, but they lack their father's heart. Their Jewish father's heart. Instead, they were prideful, critical, judgmental, unmerciful, and unloving. And they hated Jesus for showing compassion to sinners. So when Jesus ate with tax collectors and assorted sinners, they hated Him for it. They thought, those people don't deserve grace. They don't deserve mercy. They don't deserve forgiveness. They don't deserve anything. They don't deserve God. Why in the world would you treat them nicely? They hated Jesus for showing compassion. God had pleaded with the religious leaders of Israel over the centuries to come to saving faith, to turn from their wickedness, to have a broken and contrite heart, to come to God in faith like Abraham had. God pleaded with them to put off their stubborn pride. To put off their unholy anger. To love what the Father loved. To rejoice at what the Father rejoices over like the repentance of a sinner. Grammatically, this parable is in a poetic style. Two movements. The first movement is verses... 11 through 24. And it's symmetrical. It's delivered in what is known as a chiasm or a chiastic structure. And what that means briefly is line the first line parallels the last line and the second line parallels the second to last line and the third line that parallels the third to last line and so on. So the first movement is completely symmetrical. It's about the younger son and the father's response when the son returns. And it's completely symmetrical. The first line corresponds to the last line, second line to the second to last line, and all the way through the parable. But the second movement, which starts in verse 25 and goes through verse 32, is not symmetrical. The second line parallels the second to last line, the third line, the third to last line, the fourth line, the fourth to last line, and so on through the parable. But the first line and the last line are not symmetrical because there's no last line. It's missing. It's not missing because it, a copyist error somewhere that it fell out. It's missing because Jesus is putting it in the hands of the Pharisees and the scribes to write the end of the story. See, Jesus never tells us how the older son responded. And the older son here represents the Pharisees and the scribes. So how the story ends is still to be written at that moment in time, though Jesus knows how it will end. So he tells the story in such a way that the Pharisees must write the end. They must determine how it ends. They're in a perfect position to do so since they are the older son. The father here points to Christ and the forgiveness that comes through him as granted to repentant sinners. The younger son represents the tax collectors and the sinners and all of us who came to saving faith. The older son is the self-righteous Pharisees who think they are right with God and they always have been, but are angry when God shows mercy to the sinners. So how does the story end? How should it end? John MacArthur suggested the way the parable should end, and I think he's got it spot on when he did. So picking it up back at verse 31 and 32, it's the Father speaking. He said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead and has become alive and was lost and has been found. What's the next line? Well, How's it end? And the older brother picked up a piece of wood and beat his father to death. Well, that's how the story does end. Because that's exactly what they did. They took Jesus and they nailed him to a cross and they killed him. They hated Him so much for showing compassion to the sinners that they put Him to death. God had begged them for centuries to repent, but they denied their need for repentance. And they despised Jesus for showing compassion to the sinners. And they were so angry that He would do that And they denied that their anger was sin and they saw it as self-righteous indignation and they put Jesus on the cross. God is offering hope to everyone who will recognize their sinful condition. Who will humble themselves and come to Him by faith for the forgiveness of their sins. God is waiting to forgive and to embrace you and to pull you into His chest and kiss you and welcome you as sons and daughters. He's waiting to clothe you in His righteousness to make you a full-fledged child. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, wrote this quote, Because God is self-existent, His love has no beginning. Because He is eternal, His love can have no end. Because He is infinite, it has no limit. Because He is holy, it is the quintessence of all spotless purity. Because He is immense, His love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. Tozer is saying God's love is so... Massive, so huge that we can't fully comprehend how great it is. And the Pharisees hated Jesus for showing love to sinners. I like the words of the song that we sing at times from Thomas Williams that explain, very similar to Tozier's explanation. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's your story. The boundless, unmeasurable love of God has overflowed you. This is a great parable of redemption, of forgiveness, of salvation but it's so much more than that it causes people to examine their heart and ask do you love what god loves do you love those whom god loves the pharisees didn't believe that god that jesus had a right to show compassion for sinners All the while ignoring the fact that they themselves were sinners that God was extending His grace to if they would just accept. If you're sitting out here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, He's giving you the opportunity right now to respond to His grace. To humble yourself and come to Him and confess your sin and call out to Him and let Him wrap His arms around you and pull you into His chest and kiss you and hug you and call you His child. Don't miss that opportunity. Don't sit there in your pride and say, I don't need it. I'm not like those other people. I'm better than them. No, you're not. Your sin may not be as visible as others, but it's still just as wicked. Until you confess that and get it right with God, It is a sin that will send you to hell. If you don't know Christ, please, please come talk to me or someone else here that you know that we can show you from the scripture how you can be saved. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy to us. Father, that you even allowed us to be saved is an amazing thing, that you would condescend to men and women like us. Father, that you would send your Son to die in our place for our sins is an immense act of love. Father, it is an amazing thing that you've done. And Father, we pray that we would love what you love. And we would love whom you love. And Father, we pray for anyone that is here that doesn't know you as Lord, that you would be pleased to bring them to saving faith today. We pray, Father, that we would rejoice any time a sinner comes to saving faith. Father, that we would rejoice at the expressions of your grace and mercy to this world. And Father, since you know every heart in this room, I pray that you will bring those to saving faith who have yet to confess you as Lord. Father, thank you for this parable. Thank you for letting us see ourselves, for seeing your great love, your compassion for us, your excitement over the repentance of a sinner. Father, may we have the heart have your heart in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.